Good morning and welcome to Community Life Church. I'm Kat Seiler, the Director of Adult Ministries here. And we are so glad that you guys decided to join us, whether you are here in person or joining us online, welcome. Um, as we get things started this morning, if you would please stand. We are gonna get things going by joining our hearts together and praying the Lord's Prayer. Will you pray with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this beautiful Sunday morning, for the opportunity to gather in this place, to take a brief pause from the craziness of our day-to-day -day lives and to just truly center our hearts on you. We ask a blessing on Pastor Scott as he delivers today's message. And we do all of this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Now till I walk the streets of gold 
ache at the weight of your glory I needed shelter, I was an orphan Now you call me a citizen of heaven and his faithfulness to all generations. And that's found from Psalm 104 and 5. If he has been faithful, can I please get an amen? Can you imagine just for a second um, how many stories in this room of God's faithfulness, of God's goodness, miracles that have led you to that place? I want you to just think about that just for a second. I know I have a very long list. And so I'm sure some of you have a long list too. In fact, last night I was just feeling a little bit bummed. You know, you just have those weeks. And so I took out my phone and I just titled it The Goodness of God. And I went back to before I even met Scott and I just started listing every single miracle, everything that I could, that even came to mind of what God, if you've never done this, you've got to do it. There were things that I just for, to completely forgot about. I think because we have that short-term memory sometimes. But when I started listening, I was like, wow, God, you are so good. You, you have done miracle after miracle. And, and it's so easy to overlook those things, especially um, when God hasn't done uh, those unanswered things, you know, and, and we, we, can't, we can't see what God, um, what God hasn't done because all, we, what we need to see is what God is doing is what I'm trying to say. You know, it's so easy to look and say, God, you're not doing what I need you to do right now. You're not answering my prayers. And all along, he's like, well, you're not looking at and seeing what I am doing and what is around you. So just as we just worship this morning, um, just take a moment to remember his faithfulness and how he brought us from death to life. Amen. Are there any death to life stories? Amen. Take 
lifted up to Jesus, there's nothing.
God, we thank you that we can come today and boldly proclaim that you are the one who makes a way for us. That we can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that that is who you are, God. You're the one who makes a way. You're the one that keeps promises and shines in the darkness, God. Father, we thank you for the promise that you kept that you would deliver us. Father, I I pray that we would stand amazed in exactly what you did to do that, that you would send your only son to die a death on the cross, put an end to our sin, but that you would raise him again so that we could have confidence to come and say that you made a way and that you kept your promises. God, we thank you for transformation. God, that you would love us and accept us right where we were when we were without you, God, but that you wouldn't just leave us there, that you picked us up turn us around and and you would set our feet on solid ground, God. We thank you for that. We thank you for for that work that you've done, the work that you're doing. God, the stories of transformation that we're hearing every week here, the way that you're moving in our community, and God, I, I pray that that would spread beyond just our church, but that our entire community, the Gulf Breeze, Navarre, Pensacola, Panama City, all of the state of Florida, God, that, that it would become known that we're a people who are transformed by a living God who has come and sacrificed so that we could draw near. Father, I thank you for all of that. I thank you for transformation, for healing, for assurance, all the wonderful gifts that you give. We love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your son's holy and precious name today, God. Amen. Before you guys are seated, if you'll turn, greet the people around you, uh, shake some hands, learn some names. If you're with us online, we are so glad you decided to join us that way. We'll be back with you shortly. Well, good morning. Hope everyone is doing good this morning. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us today on, this is one of those beautiful Sunday mornings. You walk out of the house and you're like, yeah, thank you for being here. Um, Whether you're joining us in person or joining us online, um, it means the world to us that you would take time today uh, to come and hang out with us, to talk about scripture, to spend some time in worship. Um, I think it matters and, and thank you. Thank you for doing that. At Community Life, we love God, we love our neighbor, and we believe that our mission is to connect people to Jesus because we believe that Jesus is the source of life. And our hope is that, yes, you will discover the source of life and allow that to transform you, but then that you will take that source of life and let every other person that you come into contact with know about Jesus. And uh, if there's anything we can do to stand alongside you in this journey, um, we would love to be able to do that. Now, a couple quick announcements, and then um, we're going to continue on in our our Easter series, which I am so stoked about. So uh, next week, when you walk up to the church, there will be a silent auction going on outside. But when you get out of your car, you're going to see a bunch of teenagers out there. Don't be afraid. Um, They're trying to get your money, but they won't come directly and get your money. They're going to have a silent auction, and they're going to help explain and be a part of all that stuff. Uh, We've got a whole crew that's going to... Belize on a mission trip, and so next week's fundraiser is to help raise support for all of that, and um, just encourage you to be a part of that as much as you can, and maybe if you have a business and and you've not had an opportunity to, uh, you'd like to donate whether a service or something that um, they can auction off as well to help raise funds, we'd appreciate that as well. Um, I also hear that Cineholic will be out there selling cinnamon rolls. 
they will be, um, by Jesus, calorie-free. 100% absolutely a lie. Um, so no, it, they will not be calorie-free, but it will all be for a good purpose. So they're going to be out there as well. And um, thank you for helping support our, our youth and, and that mission trip. We also, this week coming up, we have our family gathering dinner right here in the family room. That's going to be at 6 o'clock on Thursday, February 29th. It's Addie's birthday. Um, she'll be 11 years old um, so by leap year years, whatever that means. Uh, so come and say hi to her. But really, it just gives us a chance to get together as a family. You'll get to hear committee reports and ministry reports. And uh, we'll, that's kind of when we catch you up on the life of the church. Uh, we'll have... Uh, Child care, so maybe it's a chance to come hang out with adults. Maybe just come do that on Thursday night, but we love being able to get together. And then last but not least, on March 8th, Greta is putting together a gardens and grounds cleanup team. Um, so for those of you weirdos that like to mulch and pull weeds and do all that stuff and plant, I'm just kidding. Uh, come on together. Greta loves to get that and, and have it. She's going to feed you breakfast, and then you'll just have fun uh, transforming and getting ready for spring. So thank you for for signing up for that. Uh, the two QR codes that are on the chair in front of you, or if you're at home online, um, we'll put the QR codes up. The one on the left will take you to the information page, give you all that information I just shared with you. The one on the right is our giving link. Uh, thank you for, for your generosity and helping us to connect people to Jesus. Um, and if you've not been able to do that yet, we'd love to encourage you to be a part of the great ministry that's, that's going on here at Community Life. God is truly doing something um, through this church and in this community. So we just so appreciate um, y'all helping to support us. Okay, so we are in a series called Forever Changed, and this is our Easter series, and, and I'll be honest with you, I am all jacked up about it. I'm so excited. Uh, it's a new way to study Scripture, and you always, I feel like we're doing well when people are talking about it all week long, and that's exactly what's happening in this series. So, so just off the top, I'm going to tell you that this is a series about Jesus and a series about how Jesus transforms our life. And in this series, we're going to look at seven people in particular that are a part of our um, New Testament that were connected to the life of the Jesus, to the life of Jesus, what their lives looked like before Jesus, what they looked like as they encountered Jesus, and then maybe how that turned out for them. And we're asking ourselves the question, what was it about them that changed? What was the arc of their lives that Jesus impacted? And then studying to say, what is it that happened in them that maybe makes sense to us? And here's what we're finding, that 2,000 years later, the very same things that they were walking through then are pretty close and similar to what we're walking through now. And so last week, we started off by talking about Matthew. And, and what I realized is as we go through seven weeks of this, we're not going to have time to recap every single one. But Matthew, a tax collector, was dealing with the fact that the church ostracized, hurt him, shoved him to the side. And so if you're a person that's had to deal in your life with church hurt, maybe you've experienced um, what it's like to have a church shun you or push you aside or not welcome you in the way that you should be. Um, go back and listen to that message and see if you can't understand a piece of, of how Matthew came to faith and came to understand and to meet Jesus, that he pushed through the, what was known to be the religious ruling order of the day that was not representing God well, and he found true faith in Jesus, which is the revealing of the Father. And maybe you can do that same thing. Don't let the things that have hurt you by churches um, to keep you from, from encountering a God that, that loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine. And today, we're going to move on to our second person that we're going to look at. And I'm not going to tell you exactly who they are, but I do have a video that's going to play. And in each one of these videos, you're not going to hear the name until the very end. So let's see if you can figure out who this is we're going to talk about as you 
watch this video. So I invite you, if you will, to turn your attention to the screen. Lifelong believer in Yahweh, a Pharisee of Pharisees, synagogue leader, ascended to leadership in the Sanhedrin and was there to help place his body in the tomb along with Joseph of Arimathea. I thought I was a leader, a proud, academic, intelligent, and pious. But one spring night, I realized that I was missing a connection to the laws I taught. I really didn't know the Messiah we had read so much about. My connection was intellectual, an ascent of the mind, not of the heart. No question, I knew how to keep the law, but I sure didn't know how to live it. I didn't murder, but I sure could kill my son with the anger in my heart towards him. I never missed giving my tithe, but I did give begrudgingly as I watched the poor wasted on things considered frivolous. The whole thing just consumed me. I thought I had arrived, a fount of wisdom and knowledge, but all of that changed. I saw him healing the sick and knew the Sanhedrin would make an inquiry. So I thought I'd earn points for myself by interviewing him first. So I had my servant find one of his disciples and set up a meeting. At night, of course, so no one knew that I was seeking an audience with him. There I was, ready to launch this inquisition. Turns out, I was the one being questioned. He sifted my heart, gently, but without a harsh word. Jesus showed me just how dark I had become. How ironic is it that the most iconic passage in the entire Bible is my shame? Note to self, being born again is a metaphor for spiritual rebirth not actual birth. Jesus showed me that God loved us so much that he would give up his only son. After studying scripture for 60 years, you would have thought that I would have known God loved us that much. I left that night understanding that I was loved, that he even liked me. I spent the next two years tearing apart everything I thought I knew or understood. I heard he had been crucified. On the night of the arrest, I couldn't even bring myself to be at that trial. But I could show my love by giving him a proper Jewish burial. So Joseph and I petitioned the Romans for his body. And with Mary and the other women followers, cleaned and laid him to rest. I'm so glad that it didn't end there. Now I can say, I know what it means to be born again. I am Nicodemus, no longer proud of my titles or status. I'm just a simple man who has tasted and seen. I met Jesus, and my life has been forever changed. All right, so who knew it was Nicodemus?
Who's never heard of Nicodemus ever? I trust you guys more than that first batch that raised their hands, right? <laughs> I, I love this series. Oh, diving into these people and their lives just reminds me of how real the scripture is, and, and um, you just can't make this stuff up. So we are going to talk about Nicodemus, and um, we're going to go through and and really just sort of unpack his life and see what that arc of his life was about, what did he struggle with, and then maybe we can wrestle with what maybe it says to us. So, so let's put his life into context and get a bunch of this information out of the way. So Nicodemus, um, according to Scripture, was a prominent Jewish religious leader in the time of Jesus. Now, he belonged to one of the two prominent groups in um, Israel at the time. You had your Pharisees and you had your Sadducees. He was a Pharisee. But he was also a leader among the Jews. And, and what that meant for him is that he was a part of the Sanhedrin. Now you say, well, what is that? Think um, Supreme Court and Senate. Those two things rolled up together in Israel during this time. And so he was a, a part of a, a body of religious leaders, 71 to be exact, of religious leaders during the time whose responsibility was to make decisions and to make judgments over things that Israel was facing that the lower courts or the communities couldn't handle. Now, you may say, Scott, where did this understanding of the Sanhedrin come from? Uh, do you remember in the Old Testament when Moses was leading the Israelites across the desert and, and his father-in-law says, this is crazy. You're doing way too much. You need to surround yourself with elders that can help make right judgments. Remember that? This is the basis for where the Sanhedrin comes from. And so Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, was on this, this ruling order in this group of 71 that made these decisions. And so just for a, a piece of information for you to know, um, can anyone name the most iconic trial that we're aware of that the Sanhedrin made a judgment on? Who was on trial? Jesus. Okay, good. If I don't tell you anything else, the answer is always Jesus. Go with Jesus. So they're the ones that made a ruling over Jesus, and they ultimately deemed him to be um, against the law and blasphemous, and so they're the ones that sentenced him to death. So here's some things that you need to know about the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin is a, is a group of religious leaders. I told you about the two groups that made them up, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. There were other religious groups, um, that, that the Essenes, but they weren't really as prominent part of that. The Essenes were the ones who copied the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some people believe that John the Baptist was a part of the Essene group, but... but this, those were kind of a, 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 side, a side movement that was going on. But both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they find their beginning or the roots of their group in that intertestamental period between the, the end of the, the Old Testament and the beginning of Jesus' birth. So after the exile to Babylon, when the Israelites came back into their country, um, there were groups of people who decided they never wanted to go back into exile. So really, the beginning of the Pharisees and the Sadducees started truly as a religious renewal group of people. They wanted to draw close to God. They wanted to know God and make sure that they never went back into exile. And so as a religious group, it's a beautiful gathering. It's where it started from, right heart, right people wanting to draw close to God. So the Sadducees, just to tell you a little bit about them, um, they were focused on temple worship. So their entire faith system was based on the Torah. So they only held to the first five books of the Old Testament. And according to them, they could find everything they needed in those five books only. And their main influence or focus was on the temple. So the, the sacrificial system, uh, most of these folks, you would see them in Jerusalem around the temple, and that was the, the surrounding of their power. That's where most of their power was. 
Um, so if you were to think about them as a people group, they were that more um, higher connected, higher echelon in Jerusalem, predominantly wealthy, um, that high church kind of minded folks that would be there. Um, and because of their connection to the temple and Jerusalem, were also connected to Rome because Rome would come in and if Rome had some sort of input into the Sanhedrin and into the Sadducees, then they were more of that, that political party, if you will. That was the Sadducees. Um, so their, their focus was more on Jerusalem. The Pharisees, a tad different. So if the Sadducees um, held on to only the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pharisees believe that God was still revealing and still teaching truth. And so they not only use the first five books of the Old Testament, they use the prophets, they use the Psalms, and they believe that God was continuing to reveal truth. And so from their perspective, this was a group of people who was constantly trying to discover truth, and they were willing to search for it, to find it. That's at the heart of their renewal. Now, um, when you, when you think about how they used to rule, if the Sadducees were locked up in Jerusalem thinking about sacrifice, the Pharisees were more in the understanding of synagogue worship, local communities. And so if you had the high and elite and the Sadducees, you had the Pharisees who were your common priests, who were located in the communities, really doing the work of the people that were around. Um, the challenge that the Pharisees ran into and this will make sense to you. Imagine if, if the beginning of their faith was because they wanted to be holy. And the, the word Pharisee comes from the word um, parashim, which is a Hebrew word, which means to be set apart. So their hope was to be set apart, to be holy. If they believe in the Torah and then all of the other books, their heartbeat was that they never wanted to go back into exile. So they also would listen to the teachings of the rabbis, the rabbinical order, if you will. And after the time of Jesus, all of these teachings were collected into a, a set of writings known as the Mishnah. And so the Pharisees would interpret their understanding of the law based on the Old Testament as we see it, and then the Mishnah. And their thought was, if God's law was this, and we didn't want to get too close to the law, so they just added a bunch of other laws between them and God's law so that they never even got close to messing up with God. Does that make sense? And what happens is they became a people with a lot of rules. Tons and tons of rules. And somewhere in that, more than likely, they lost the understanding of God in the rules. So the marker of a true Pharisee should be a constant search for truth and a revealing of God. But what they became was cold and religious, steeped in more law than even the Sadducees because they heaped it on not only the Torah, but the rabbinical teaching as well. And so if we're going to look specifically at Nicodemus, we have three stories that are given to us, or three sets of scripture that are given to us, and all of them are in the Gospel of John. And that opens up a whole new train of thought that we don't even have close to time to cover today. But all three of them are in the Gospel of John. We're going to look and focus on John chapter 3. This is where the John 3.16 comes from, so you're going to hear the context about that scripture. But then you get John chapter 7, um, verses 45 through uh, 53, which is uh, Nicodemus is a part of the Sanhedrin, and so the temple priests decided that they were done with Jesus. So they sent the temple guard to go arrest Jesus. And when they go to arrest Jesus, they realize there's a big crowd around them, so they decide to wait for the right time. And as they're waiting, they make the fatal error of listening to Jesus. And as they're listening to Jesus, they're like, you know what, this guy's pretty good. And as they're listening to him, he's like, it makes kind of sense. And so rather than arrest him, they decided to go back to the temple priest. And when they show up at the temple priest, 
They're like, well, where is he? And they're like, well, we decided not to arrest him. Have you ever heard this guy? He's kind of awesome. And the temple priests are like, are you crazy? Like, you're believing in him too? Have you lost your mind? Nicodemus stands up and Nicodemus says, hey, guys, I just want you to know that Jesus, as a Jewish person, is, deserves a fair trial. Now, how many of you believe that went well for Nicodemus? It did not. They immediately turned on him and they said, what, are you from Galilee too? Which I guess is slang as if to say, are you low class and you're from the Galilee? And there's nothing good came from that region at all. And so they just dismissed him. That's the first interaction that you get from, a second interaction that you get from Nicodemus. The third happens at the cross. And so after Jesus is dead on the cross, there's not a lot of time before Sabbath starts. And so there's a small window to prepare his body for burial. You have Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who go to the Romans and ask permission to get his body. They grant him permission and Nicodemus shows up in such an extreme way. He doesn't just show up to help Joseph of Arimathea carry this body. He shows up with a hundred pounds of aloe and myrrh, two spices that are intended to be used when burying rulers or kings. So something is revealed in Nicodemus's heart when he shows up, because you don't just go find this or buy this, you prepare for it. So something in this story connected to his heart, and you see this transformation that happens when he's there, he helps to prepare Jesus' body, and they place it in the tomb, and then you know the rest of the story. Three days later, Jesus comes back to life. So you see him later on in that exchange, and it tells you something about Nicodemus. Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to back up to the very first encounter where he runs into Jesus and he has this exchange. All of you probably have heard John 3.16, but not many of you know the story around it. And my prayer is that when you hear this story, it will make that much more sense because it'll be in context and you will realize that he didn't just throw John 3.16 out there. When you understand where he's trying to relate it to, you have to run through some hoops to figure out what he's saying. And hopefully today, when you leave, it'll make that much more sense to you. So we're going to be in John chapter 3. Um, and just a quick setup before we read the scripture. The, when you look at our Bible, you, you, we reference things by chapter and verse. What you need to know is that those chapters and verses were not there in the original writings. In fact, they were not added until 1220-something A.D., thousand years, thousands of years, a thousand plus years after Jesus was already gone. And you say, Scott, why are you mentioning that? Well, the chapters and verses weren't necessarily inspired like the scripture was. And so there's times when you will jump into and start reading a chapter, but if you don't have the information from the chapter before it, you're missing a big point. And so John, who did not care about chronological order, let's just go ahead and say that. The way he writes his gospel is just like a throwing things at the wall. And, and I'm kidding. It's a masterful writing, but he's intentional about his literary use of stories. So in order to understand what John is doing with Nicodemus, you have to read chapter 2. We're not going to read all of it. I'm just going to tell you what he does. In chapter 2, Jesus, uh, John gives us the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, and as, which happens way later on in time, but John's using it for a purpose. So Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple, and he says to everyone who hears him to stop. Let me read it. He says, stop making my father's house a marketplace. Now, when you think of a normal Pharisee and Sadducee, what would they call the temple? The temple. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll go ahead and give you the answer. So when Jesus says, stop making my father's house a marketplace, do you think that's problematic? The answer is yes. That's problematic. That they would be like, wait a minute, what? So for a Pharisee, he's just trying to figure out and understand this. But as you go through the rest of chapter two, 
Jesus and what he does in the temple causes people to listen to him and start to believe in him. But scripture at the end of chapter two, John tells us that even though they believed in him, Jesus didn't turn and stay with them because he could see the condition of their heart and he went on from that place. So there was something that wasn't authentic about them listening. But then you get to chapter three, which says now Nicodemus, a Pharisee. So there's a contrast People who were wanting to follow Jesus, but for a different reason, compared to Nicodemus, who has a true searching heart, Jesus takes the time to spend with him. So there's a compare and a contrast between what you see going on in chapter two and chapter three. So here we go in chapter three, just going to start reading and running through it. So chapter three, verse one, it says, now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. We've already talked about what it means to be a Pharisee, and we've already talked about him as being a leader of the Jews and being in the Sanhedrin. Verse two. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that, do, that you do apart from the presence of God. So the first thing he says is, Scripture tells us that he came um, at night. Now, if you want to find something that's been written about millions of times, go research why Nicodemus goes to see Jesus at night. There are a thousand different reasons, and all of them are good. Some people say he went at night because he didn't want people to know. We, that's kind of what we used in our story here. Some people said he went at night because he couldn't wait one more moment. He had to go hear the answer. Some people said he went at night because uh, rabbis would teach that the best time to study Torah is at night. There's less distractions. What is it? Who knows? Here's what we do know. He went at night. Everybody say night. That's all we know, 100%, 100% that he went to see Jesus at night. John's trying to tell us something and we have no idea why. So let's just know that it was at nighttime. So when Nicodemus runs into Jesus, he calls him rabbi. Now that's, a, that's something you need to kind of wrestle with. He didn't look down upon him. It's actually the start of a collegial conversation. So when, when Nicodemus moves into this conversation, he's actually, Nicodemus is, in his mind, humbling himself a little bit to say, hey, Rabbi, let's have this conversation because Nicodemus was a part of the Sanhedrin. You didn't get much higher than that. So when he engages Jesus, he's kind of shining him a little bit. Hey, Rabbi, let's have this conversation. You know, and, and I love this because he would have been complimenting Jesus in a very powerful way. But what I love is the question that he asks. It's as authentic and real as anything you can imagine. He says, you know, we know that you are a teacher that's come from God for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Now, now why do I mention that? Usually when you read in our scriptural text that a Pharisee, a scribe, or a Sadducee is asking Jesus a question, what's the motive behind it? They're trying to trick him. They're trying to trap him. So here you get this story of a true authentic question from a Pharisee who wants an answer. There's no tricking. There's none of that stuff going on outside of that. He, he wants to know what's happening. Now, I, I love Jesus in, in so many more ways. I specifically love the way that he answers, and he answers to me this way. I might go into prayer time and try and butter him up a little bit. You ever done that? Of course, you guys would never do that, right? It's like, hey, you're so awesome. Okay, here's what I really need, right? Jesus doesn't take this compliment from Nicodemus. He goes right to the heart of the matter. And so my advice to you is, God knows what you're thinking, so just get to it, right? Get in there, rip all that pretension out, and go after it. What he says in verse 3 is so powerful. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. It, it is, it's, it's not even no one can enter. It's no one can see. Hey, Nicodemus, you can't even get a sniff at the kingdom of heaven unless you're born from above. Now, he didn't take the bait on the compliment, any of those things. He went right to the heart of the matter. 
That's so powerful to wrestle with this about Jesus. And so we just immediately throw this out there. Now, something you need to know about the text, and this is, is in the Greek, is this word, um, the, the phrase to be born again or to be born from above. The word that he uses is, is the word anothen, which can have multiple meanings. It can mean, mean what my translation, the NRSV translates as, as born from above, but it can also mean what we've all heard it to mean, which is to be born again or to be born anew. What we find out from Nicodemus is when he hears it, he doesn't think to be born from above. He immediately translates it as to be born again. And we know this because of what he says in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into a mother's womb and be born? I cannot wait someday to meet Nicodemus because I guarantee you he would want this question back. Right, probably the most knowledgeable, one of the most knowledgeable men in all of Israel. And he asks if he can crawl back up into his mother's womb. And probably later he's like, ah. So in, in Jim's writing, we added this understanding of note to self. It's a metaphor, right, for being born again. Um, so here's this learned man that is just really confused with birth um, and, and what's taking place in this message. And so he asks the question. Now, I, I think to, to relieve him of some angst, Nicodemus is probably not used to people being this direct, um, asking him questions or going right straight to the heart of the matter. So he's now having to think quickly on his feet and it doesn't go well for him through the rest of the conversation. But he's just trying to respond. But here's the thing that's most powerful. And this gave me a sense to pause and, and have a little deeper respect for Nicodemus. Nicodemus entered into this conversation with an understanding that he was connected to God and by covenant, by birth, the mere fact that he was born informed him in his faith that he was good. So when he hears another rabbi say, you got to be born again, it would have thrown him off. He would have not been able to be on his best game. This is something he's never heard before. And he would have been wrestling to try and understand. And his response would have been, well, I was already born. How, do am I, how am I possibly born again? He got stuck in this awareness. But that was his truth is that he's thinking, I was born into this faith. I'm fine. What are you talking about? Verse 5, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Now, this text is, is a representation of why we should never take things out of context. So many faith systems, Christian belief systems, have, have come to understand water as having maybe more of a prominent role in faith than what Jesus ever intended. So if you stop and you pull this out, you start to understand water and spirit, and then we create an entire theology around it. If you just read on to the next verse, Jesus clarifies what he means by water. He says, I'm born of water and spirit, verse 6, what is born of flesh is flesh. And so in reference to water, he immediately connects it to flesh. And what is born of spirit is spirit. And so Jesus is saying that there's, there's two understandings of birth. You're born in the flesh, you're born in the spirit. And so all of us, we were born. Can we all agree with that? And we've all at some point born. And when you came into this world, your mother's water broke and you were born. Born of the water. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Jesus goes on now to make reference to something else. He said, but spirit gives birth to spirit. And so he's trying to bring Nicodemus into this understanding and awareness. Verse 7, he says, do not be astonished that I say to you, you must be born from above or that you must be born again or that you must be born anew. He's using his context and his awareness of the law to try and help him understand it. And if you don't learn anything else in this, to understand John 3 appropriately, 
You have to understand the life of this Pharisee, which is what we're doing today, and what their law told them. It makes more sense in understanding John 3.16. And so he goes on, and now he's going to give more information. Verse 8. He says, the wind blows where it chooses. Now, the word wind is interesting in the Greek. It's the word pneuma, and it can be translated either wind or spirit. So he says, the wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So he says, Nicodemus, listen. You understand this about the Spirit, that God leads and God directs and God transforms, and you can't always make sense of it, right? There is a spiritual awareness that I need you to connect with. In verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Right? Like, imagine his level of frustration. He's just lost, right? Poor, I love this guy. He's just as honest as they can possibly come. The smartest man maybe in all of Israel is now reduced to rubble, and he's just babbling. Um, how can this possibly be? Um, verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Here's, here's what I think makes sense. In their faith, in the rabbinical teaching, when a person um, converted from being a Gentile or a worshiper of other gods to Judaism, they had a term and a phrase that would say something like this. It wasn't always the same, but the phrase would be that when a person converts to Judaism, they would be born like a newborn child, or they would be washed clean, or they would be born anew or born again. And so Jesus is using their own teachings to bring him to the awareness of a change or a transition or a rebirth in their life. Does that make sense? So what I, what, I keep asking that, you're not going to, you what I'm trying to tell you is that this should have made sense to Nicodemus as he was wrestling through it. Now, here's where you got to hold on. The rest of John chapter three, um, from verse 11 all the way down through, this is where you build the context of the awareness of the son of God. So verse 11 and 12, he says, very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we've seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? So he's like, I'm sitting here teaching you. I'm testifying to the things that I see, and you can't even understand that. How in the world are you going to understand the spiritual things? How many of you know Jesus is going to go ahead and tell them anyways, right? I love that about Jesus. He's like, okay, so just hold on. You're not going to get this, but hopefully some point you'll get it. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So he starts to build this theology that as human, Nicodemus, we're born of flesh and we are flesh. As a flesh person, you can't just ascend to spirit or ascend to heaven. You, you can't do that. But there is one who can. It's the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And if you've read John's gospel, the, 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 um, the spirit became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. So John's gospel carries that message of God coming down to earth, so spirit coming down to earth. And so he's starting to build our theological awareness of what's happening. So we couldn't go there, so God came to us. Verse 14, then he gives us a scripture reference. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, we don't necessarily know this story, but in Numbers 21, something amazing happens. So in Numbers 21... Um, the Israelites have just won a big battle and they go back to their place in the wilderness. And as they're in their place in the wilderness, they start to get angry because they no longer want manna. They're sick and tired of the manna and they start complaining and they start grumbling and they turn their backs on God and they say, we wish you would have just left us in Egypt. Why did you take us out of this? And so God turns them over to their own selves and to their own attack. And God releases um, serpents that come into the camp and start to bite them. And they start to realize that, uh-oh, 
Everything's going south in our world and we cannot save ourselves from our own destruction because they decided they didn't need God. God allowed them to fight the battle on their own. So what do they do? They turn to Moses and they say, Moses, call out to God, we need help. And so Moses calls out to God and God does exactly that. He says, take this bronze serpent, make it, put it on a staff and lift it up and everyone who believes that I can save them and turns, their, turns away from this wickedness and turns their eyes and sets their eyes on the serpent and believes that I can save them will be saved. Do you see the context by which we're getting towards John 3, 16? Now for context, this lifting up is not to worship. This lifting up is in reference to the cross. The son of man must be lifted up as the serpent was in the wilderness. In verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here comes John 3, 16. Hear it? Now, with fresh ears, in light of what he just told Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have everlasting life. So just for a moment, God looks down to a broken world that is doomed to deal with its own chaos, a world that has turned its heart away from God. The righteous or those that believe cry out to God to make a way for us to be back. And what does God do? God comes down from heaven into earth and is lifted up on a cross. And he says, now everyone who sees this gift and recognizes that I can save them and sets their eyes on me and chooses to believe will be saved. Does that feel different when you understand that in context? When you connect it to Numbers 21, don't answer that. When you connect it to Numbers 21 and in context, it's the awareness of God asking us to realize that we are aware that we cannot save ourselves, but that God's response was to love us and to make a way, and that's why he sent Jesus. And in the, when the crucifixion takes place and we turn around and we see the gift that God has given us, when we choose to believe in him, that's that understanding of faith that brings about that second birth or that rebirth. It's our connection to life, not just our own physical nature by which we cannot save ourselves and have flesh turn into spirit, but we turn, recognize the spirit and the nature of God, and that's when we are saved. Now look at verse 17 and 18. He says, indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so when God looked down and saw the world's brokenness, he didn't just say, well, I'm going to send my son down there to condemn them. He did. The world was already condemned. The act of sending Jesus was out of love and compassion and heart to save. And so if you're here today and you're struggling with the nature of God, you misunderstand God. God wants every single person to receive the love of God. He says, but there are people that won't. And it's not that I've condemned them. They've condemned themselves. They've made a decision to not believe in me. And then he goes on and he says, um, those who believe in me are not condemned, but those who do not believe in me are condemned already. We just said that. Because they have not believed in my name. This, and here's where you get to verse 19. This pulls it all together. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And so what he's saying is light came into the world to reveal a different way and so many people just preferred their own way. They preferred to save themselves. They, they preferred to reject God and they would never turn and see the light and see the revelation of the God that loved them. Does that help to understand John 3, 16 in a little bit different way? When you hear all of that and some of y'all are just like, I'm gonna have to go home and read that and study it because you've heard it so much out of context to try and, to try and understand it makes it difficult. So here in these last few minutes, let's deal with the text and then let's deal with the, the larger point of, of what we're looking at inside of our series. And so right off the bat, um, you have to wrestle with the fact that maybe the most pious, religious person who's walking according to the law in every single aspect that he can 
is confronted by Jesus and is to deal with the conversation where Jesus says, hey, what you're doing is not enough, that you are lost if you are just counting on the fact that you were born into this world, that there is a birth that goes beyond that and a recognition of a faith that goes beyond that. There is a faith that goes beyond law that leads to a spiritual birth. And so for Nicodemus to show up to this party and think, I've been born and I'm good, this is where this shows up in our world today. Some of you may say, hey, Scott, I'm good. I was born into an awesome Christian family. Please hear me say this. The faith of your parents is not good enough for you. Every single person needs to wrestle with the understanding that you cannot save yourself. But here's the beautiful truth. God's done everything necessary for you to experience life and rebirth by sending his son to this world and doing all of the heavy lifting. And it falls to us to turn away from that brokenness, to turn away from our own willingness to try and save ourselves and focus on Jesus and say, can't save myself, but I believe that God loved me enough to, to send his son. And today, boy, that's me. I'm choosing to believe and giving my life to him. That's the awareness that God was driving to Nicodemus. And I'm gonna tell you, that's the awareness that we wrestle with today allowing that message to transform our hearts and bring us to a closer awareness to God. So please hear that today. Before you walk out of this place or somewhere on the ride home, make sure that you recognize and thank God for the, for the sacrifice that he made in Jesus for you. Amen? The second part of this, if we back up and we're going to talk about Nicodemus and the arc of his life. To me, Nicodemus represents a life of serving a God that he really didn't know. He had all the information, he had all the rules, he had all the stories, all the platitudes, all the teachings. All of it was firmly entrenched in his mind, but it never made the short journey to his heart. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Paul writes this, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so here, here's a thought I think that makes sense. Knowledge of God's law without knowing God's heart creates pride in self-righteousness. That's the puff up. Why? Because we think we learn about God, and so what that does is allows us to be the judge. And we don't really recognize what that law says about us. But here's what, how love builds up. Knowing God's heart in light of God's law reveals God's love for us and recognizes the grace that showed us how God wanted to save us from the penalty of the law. And when you learn that and you understand that grace, then that is a love that builds us up gives us a different sight line on how we carry the message of Christ and how we love those people around us that I'm going to tell you are impossible to love. For God so loved the world, that's the message. And if we can ever get to that place to hold on to it, that's so powerful. And here's what I would end with. The Nicodemus that we see in John 3, that's stammering and trying to figure this out and wrestling with it, he shows up completely differently at the cross. When he shows up at the cross with 100 pounds of aloe and a hundred pounds of, of myrrh, when all of those things come together, what it does is it reveals um, maybe what he finally understood, that he got to live in a time and witness exactly what was written about in Numbers 21 when the Son of Man was lifted up and his understanding of God loving him in that way became so powerful. And so he responds in such a graceful way in front of everyone in the middle of the day. He goes and basically professes his faith as he prepares Jesus for the burial of a king. And so here's how I would end today, is that maybe in your life that you have understood more about the rules and you've lost sight of the ruler and you've lost sight of the God 
that provided those constraints for us to help us in our lives as we move through. And I think that maybe if you're going to wrestle with the ark, for me, dealing with that self-righteousness or um, faith that we've constructed over all of these years starts by deconstructing it and allowing God and his love to rebuild it. Allow us to anchor ourselves in the love of God that gives us a different perspective on how God loves those people around us. And it gives us a better sight line on our brokenness in light of other people's brokenness. You know, we can look at people and say, I hate them for doing that. And God's like, you got your own issues that you're overlooking. But I made a way for you. So let's go talk to this other person about how we made a way for them. Amen? And my prayer is that today you'll open up your heart and you'll choose to believe. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. God, I thank you for this message as, as um, hard and easy and difficult and not difficult it is. Ugh, pushing scripture around on a page, here's the beautiful thing. We've tried to put into words your spirit. And those words help inspire us and lead us and guide us. And we anchor ourselves in, in that faith. But God, you love us. And um, you're here today with us, amongst us. And you're calling us to a whole new place in our life. For some of us, it's a rebirth, a decision that we've not ever made. And it's the, it's, the, it's the thought and the decision to choose to walk away from everything that we tried to save and accomplish in our life and choose to give our lives to you and receive your gift into our hearts, knowing that we can't save ourselves. Don't let us make it more difficult than what it is. It's a beautiful gift that we can just receive. And today I pray for all of us, and I know in my life I have to add myself to that list that at times have found ourselves judgmental and cold. God, that you would renew us and that you would bring us to a place to where that restoration and that transformation would give us clean, living, breathing hearts that once again can love appropriately. We love you, we trust you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I invite you, if you will, to stand. And as we play this final song, um, Pastor Addy's on this side. I'll be over on this side. We would love to pray with you, whether that's salvation or whether that's a prayer of blessing over you and your life and, and whatever it is that your family's walking through today. Thank you for your time. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. He's been my foreman in the fire time after time. of his spirit washed in his blood and what he did for me on Calvary is more than enough I trust in God my
allowing us the time today to go a little extra long and unpack that. I'm telling you, I think it's worth it to understand and know how crucial that text is. And uh, my prayer is that today you find the capacity. It's not your capacity. It's the capacity that God gives us to love somebody that is truly unlovable. There, I said it. Because <laughs> we've all been at that some point in our lives. And uh, we just pray that God would lead and guide you. And if, if we can ever do anything for you as a church to stand alongside you, please, please, please let us know. Uh, if you've been attending the church for a little while, want to find out more about the church, meet us out in the Next Steps room. And uh, we'd love to just shake your hand and love on you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we go from this place, I pray that you would lead us, guide us, and just allow us to see your spirit at work. Um, in Jesus' own words, the spirit blows here, blows there. We don't exactly know what's going on, but God, you lead. And so in our lives, maybe this week is one of those weeks where we just feel you prompting us to go somewhere, to do something, and it's all by divine nature. So as we lean into you and trust you, God, lead on. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful week. Thank you. I saw